Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, the podcast covering 10,000 years of Swedish history, one small section at a time. I'm Elsa. And I'm Chris. Today's section will begin in 1348 and is episode number 57 on our journey, one that also is very keen to have a specific name. Yes, we'll, we'll see in the editing process if I get my name. But what do you want it to be called? I want it to be called Here We War Again. Instead of Here We Go Again. Yes. Cool. Well, that's a bit of a spoiler. But um, before we start talking about this war that's coming up, it's time for the Swedish phrase of the week. The phrase for you all this week is Följa till punkt och pricka, which literally translates to English as follow to full stop and crossing off. It means to follow or adhere to something strictly or carefully. So you could say, for example, when you're putting together IKEA furniture, it's important that you follow the instruction till punkt och pricka. And I guess it's similar to the English phrase, follow it to the letter, or exactly the same meaning, just obviously different words. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Följa till punkt och pricka is the same as follow it to the letter. Cool, well that's a good phrase to know, but now it's time to dive back into the 1340s. Now, it's important to remember that almost everything that happens in this episode, bar the first uh, couple of minutes, is going to be happening at the same time as effectively half of Sweden is dying from the Black Death, as Scandinavia is engulfed by the disease. But, yeah, like I said, the first few events this isn't going to happen, but we'll remind you when the Black Death appears. The Black Death is going to have consequences on what is to come, and we will mention it when it's relevant. But yes, this is a horrific disease that's happening right now, and we covered it in the previous episode for a bit more background about what's going to happen in Sweden. We ended the last chronological episode before the Black Death with the Black Death arriving in England in 1348, the same time that there were vague historical references to a Novgorodian attack on Swedish lands in the east. Whether or not these tales were true, in 1347 and 1348, figures across Sweden started talking about how there clearly needed to be another crusade to Novgorod, one last big offensive against the Orthodox Christians to the east. We saw how Bigitta was agitating from a religious point of view for this crusade to happen, and how historian M.C. Paul insists this is a religious conflict, despite the political and economic goals that Sweden also has for their campaign. Before we leave 1348, though, there's a Quite an amusing anecdote, as uh, Birgitta is clearly focusing on all war in general at this time. She sends a letter to the Pope in an attempt to end the ongoing Hundred Years' War. Well, seeing as the Hundred Years' War is only 11 years old at this point, I guess she didn't uh, succeed in her task. <laughs> no, exactly. But back in Sweden, for now... And whatever the reason, things are going to heat up a bit. This is actually the first of all the Swedo-Novgorodian wars that is relatively well documented in both Swedish and Novgorodian records. So expect some drama. 
Yes, because up until now, we've basically been relying on the Novgorod Chronicle, which isn't the best for accuracy, <laughs> and a few sort of archaeological bits and pieces and some odd letters from uh, Swedish kings to various people, but now we're getting a little bit more information about what's going on. The main thing, though, is that I'm disappointed that Gleb isn't going <laughs> to be involved, as news just in, Gleb was just killed in battle fighting for his native Lithuania against the Teutonic Knights. Oh, no. Gleb. Yeah, well, at least, I guess he didn't turn up to fight for the Novgorodians last time, so expecting him to be involved this time was maybe a bit too optimistic. Ah, <laughs> oh, shame. I would have loved to see more of Gleb. To start things off, and to create a pretext for his invasion... King Magnus sends some envoys to Novgorod in 1348. Bizarrely, he is inviting the Novgorodian religious leaders to a debate. Uh, as the Novgorodian Chronicle says... Send your philosophers to a conference, and I will send my own philosopher, so that they may discuss faith. They will ascertain whose faith is the better. If your faith is the better, then I will go into your faith. But if our faith is the better, you will go into our faith, and we shall be as one man. But if you do not agree to uniformity, then I will come against you with all my forces. <laughs> this is so... Nothing has ever been resolved that way, but I guess what he's suggesting is a sort of orthodox priest versus Magnus Catholic priests and the losers have to take the winner's version of Christianity. Yeah, it sounds like a really weird priest-off <laughs> conference. Now, the fact that he calls it a conference, uh, I wonder if they have sort of name badges and some some little nibbles before yeah. they start. and then, Free pens. Yeah, free pens. I mean, I've not been to too many conferences, I have to say, but it, none of them involves you having to take on another religion if you lose. Well, you're going to the wrong uh, conference. It's clearly. <laughs> but perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, the Novgorodians also said, that this was a stupid idea, but perhaps not for the reasons you are thinking, dear listener. Um, they actually call out the Swedes on a technicality, saying that they should take their religious conference idea to the Patriarch in Constantinople, so that Magnus can debate against the people who actually run the Orthodox Christianity. The Novgorodians just took all their advice from the Patriarch in Constantinople, so uh, it should be the, the Patriarch who should partake in in this epic preach battle. Magnus wasn't too happy with this answer, but of course that is to be expected. This is either just pretext for an invasion, or he was angry for not being able to debate Christianity at a weird conference with his enemies. And so, in the spring of 1348, Magnus's navy sails towards Novgorod and all the way up the Neva to where Lake Ladoga begins. Here, they find Novgorodians who are willing to negotiate, but Magnus demands that all Novgorodians shall convert from Orthodox to Catholic Christianity, which they, of course, don't agree to. And Magnus says to them... I have no grievance whatever against you, but adopt my faith or I will march against you with my whole force. It seems uh, very similar to what he said previously. Yeah. And the Novgorodians reply with a simple no. They went back to the fortress that they had at Orokov on its main island, also called uh, Nertiboy, and closed the door. And they probably locked it too. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly firm no. Yeah, that's a firm no. And Magnus quickly sets about sieging the fortress. Novgorod takes the time to gather an army, and according to the Novgorod Chronicle, they send this straight away against the Swedes. There is a battle, unfortunately the Chronicle doesn't say where, but another Chronicle, the later Sustal Chronicle, also from Russia, says the battle is at a place called Shabatstin. And in this battle, the Swedes lose 500 men and an unstated number of their soldiers are captured. The Chronicle says that Novgorod lose just three men, so that's either very impressive or very debatable. (laughs) The Novgorod Chronicle says this, Through the prayers of the Holy Mother of God, and with the help of St. Sophia and of the Holy Martyrs Boris and Gleb, God aided Onstafor, the Novgorodan commander, and they killed 500, and others they took alive, and executed the traitors, and the men of Novgorod returned all well, having only lost three men. Side note there for Gleb fans, unfortunately, this is actually the original Gleb, uh, a prince from the 1070s who fought and died alongside Boris. So no, this isn't the work of our favourite Gleb from previous episodes. Yeah, this was OG Gleb. (laughs) (laughs) But in spite of this mini-defeat... Magnus continues to siege Orokov, which, remember, the Swedes called Nerth the Boy. The Novgorodians have lots of internal political problems at this point, with various potential counterattacks stopped by infighting and various commanders arguing with each other. Magnus's conquest is made easier by the fact that at the same time as German knights were killing Gleb in an unrelated conflict, they attack Peskov, an important fortress in Novgorod, splitting their attention. So as a result, Nerteboy falls for the Swedes. Hooray, victory for Sweden. The Novgorod Chronicle has a bit of a problem sticking to the script, though, and staying on topic, as it interrupts this war with news that on the night of the death of Ian the Theologian, a fire broke out in Volosov Street, which was partially burnt down, also a part of Dobrynna Street and a good part of Prussian Street. The Church of the Holy Mother of God was partially burnt too. Okay, (laughs) that's very important. Interrupts the narrative slightly. But back at Nerteboy, Magnus was probably very pleased with himself. From such a vantage point, the Swedes could cut off Novgorod's trade at will and could also send missions raiding up into Novgorod-controlled Karelia, which was now cut off from Novgorod. By cutting off trade, Magnus could attempt to force Novgorod to go over to the Catholic faith if this was indeed the main goal of his campaign. But Magnus doesn't stick around for long. He does the same thing the Swedes do every single time they have some success in the region. He heads home with most of his army, leaving just a skeleton force behind to defend the fortress. Calling it a skeleton force is a bit prophetic, as soon after, in August, a Novgorodian army arrives at Nerteboy, ready to fight to get it back. They've also actually recruited forces from elsewhere in Russia that didn't normally fight for Novgorod or belong to the Novgorod lands, which goes to show that areas more to the inland of Novgorod also viewed the Swedish takeover of Nerteboy as a big problem. Novgorod isn't Russia at this point, 
we have uh, the entity Moscow or Muscovy, which is another big sort of own country at this point, and, and they're sort of teaming up with Novgorod a little bit in this battle against Sweden. And we'll see in the future as we go, minor spoilers about how these two entities combine and eventually form Russia much later in the timeline. But yes, for now, the Novgorodians, with some warriors from the general region around Lake Ladoga, lay siege to Nurtaboy Castle in August 1348. This is a proper siege, and goes on for a very long time. So long, in fact, that it stretches into the new year. For some reason, Magnus and the Swedes don't come to try and stop it. This means that before long, the Swedish defenders are starved, battered, and demoralized. And then finally, this happens. On the dawn of Tuesday in Passion Week, they took the town by the grace of God. So yes, Nurtaboy Castle, the prized possession of the Swedish invaders and symbol of Novgorod military supremacy in the Ladoga region, is now back in Novgorodian hands. As we'll see in a few years though, the castle itself is pretty badly damaged during this siege and is in need of some major repairs. Now, whilst it's easy to blame the Swedish king for not sending help to the besieged fortress, one reason why Magnus maybe doesn't send any reinforcements is because it's now 1349, and so that means the Black Death is in Norway, or is just about to enter the country, and, and then onto Sweden. Magnus has presumably heard of the disease that is ravaging Europe, and so perhaps he doesn't want to commit loads of resources to a rescue mission. Sticking to form, Sweden also has no money, and this is only going to increase in severity as more and more people across Magnus's realms die. So, these might have stopped Magnus's attempts to reinforce Nurtaboy once the Novgorodians arrived to siege it, but soon afterwards he's provoked into taking more action, regardless of if he can afford it or not. That is because in 1350, on Monday the 21st of March to be exact, Novgorod had also marched up and attacked Vyboy, ravaging the areas around the fortress before returning to Novgorod with a number of prisoners. Soon after, though, the two forces meet at a place called Dorpat for a prisoner exchange. The Novgorodians give the Swedes some of the prisoners they took at Vyboy and after the siege at Nurtaboy, and the Swedes return some men called Avram, Kusma, Alexander and Andre, along with some soldiers, back to Novgorod. Well, good for those guys uh, getting a name check in yeah. the protocol. Um, but unfortunately for everyone involved, this isn't the end of the matter. The original attack on V-Boy and the fall of Nurtiboy means that Magnus was always going to be looking for a chance to try and take back the valuable island castle, just depending on when he could get round to doing it. This results in him raising new taxes to fund this campaign, which is of course not liked by the people considering Magnus has been trying to get as much money from them his whole reign, and they're probably pretty tired of this by this point. But the Pope, importantly, supports this plan, and promises the same rewards for this crusade against the heathens of the East as he gives to those going on crusade to the Holy Land. This means that Magnus manages to just about scrape together enough coins to pay for yet another military adventure. Magnus's campaign was apparently initially successful, 
But they fail to get all the way down to Nurtaboy, since Novgorod has expected uh, there would be some sort of Swedish counterattack and has gathered a large force to defend it. In something that doesn't sound too believable, the fleet that Magnus used to transport his troops over uh, are then supposedly encircled by a superior Novgorodian navy at the mouth of a river in western Ingermanland, so that's near modern-day Estonia. That part in itself isn't too ridiculous. However, the Swedish fleet managed to escape the trap by digging a canal past the enemies, but is then scattered in a storm. It seems a bit dubious to me that they say they can dig a whole canal <laughs> through the land to sort of sneak past the Novgorodian navy, and the Novgorodians are just sitting there watching them build an escape route and do nothing about it. How long was this canal? And Yeah, <laughs> how silently can you dig a canal? Invisibly as well, the Novgorodians would have just been watching them do this. So this doesn't seem very true. Um, perhaps there was just a big storm and they got blown away. Yeah. <laughs> Now, we're going to briefly touch on the end of this part of the war before we go back to finish off what happened in 1350, as 1350 is such a huge year for Sweden in general. But seeing as the rest of what happens in Sweden doesn't involve the war, it made sense to finish this little bit of the story first. So, realising that war is expensive and seeing his money just flow out of his bank balance, Magnus tries another tactic instead. At the start of 1351, Magnus travels to Estland and Livland, northern parts of modern-day Latvia, and spends some time meeting local dignitaries and diplomats on another way of waging war against Novgorod. He wants to gain enough support from the local traders and leaders to instigate a trade blockade. This is taking a lesson from the Hansa, really, isn't it? It's a very indirect way of taking down Novgorod. For whatever reason, and we don't have any accounts of these negotiations, it doesn't work. It isn't too hard to at least guess why. Uh, Novgorod is the powerful neighbour to these areas and would presumably retaliate if this block on trade with them came in. And presumably Magnus wasn't promising Swedish troops to defend them, because they're all either dead from war with Novgorod or dying from the Black Death, with the survivors still being expensive to pay. So yeah, this is just not a good deal for Estonia and Livonia. Seeing the writing on the wall, a ceasefire between Sweden and Novgorod is signed in Dorpat in the spring, once again based on the original treaty from years before. So, in effect... Not much has changed. No, just a lot of uh, death and money wasted, especially for Magnus. Yeah, there is that. But yes, that is it for this phase of the seemingly perpetual beef between Sweden and Novgorod. It's now time to jump back into our time machine and go back one whole year to 1350. We already know this is the year that the Black Death kicks into overdrive in Sweden after the first few feelers reached the country and certainly reached Norway the year before. But there are a lot of political and social developments this year as well. Indeed there are. And the first thing that happens at this time is a bit of family drama. 
Ingeborg's two sons with Knut Porsa, so Magnus's half-brothers, die. Not sure if they died from the plague, but that, you know, potentially, considering this is happening at this time. The older brother had become the Duke of Halland after their father's death, and as both of them died without children, the title passed up to Ingeboy, who became the Duchess of Halland. But this time, the Duchess of Halland as the ruling Duchess, rather than just the courtesy title she had before because she was married to the Duke of Halland, if that makes sense. So, Ingeborg sort of regains a little bit of political power, or at least just a title, because it appears that the councils are still very much set against her having any sort of say, and she doesn't seem to have managed to force her way back into the political game. Oh, that's a shame. She's actually survived for quite a long time now. She's going to be about 50 at this point, having successfully navigated choppy political waters for a while now, albeit just managing to keep her head above water for most of it. The next big moment of the year uh, also has something to do with family. There is a meeting in Bergen in Norway to formally sort out what will happen when Håkon becomes of age and becomes king of Norway. This is a confirmation of a few earlier meetings in the 1340s when Magnus was forced to accept his son as the future king of Norway when Helcon comes of age. At this meeting, Magnus actually asks to keep control of the North Sea Islands and Hålogaland, the northernmost Norwegian province at this time, which he was granted. He also got to keep the towns of Tønsberg and Skien, and his wife, Queen Blanche, kept control of Buuslen, which she got as her wedding gift. So he's managing to sort of sneakily keep hold of a few bits of Norway at the time, and uh, those islands that were nominally Norwegian, even though his son's about to take the Norwegian crown. Now, the Norwegians aren't backing down about this whole Hawkorn becoming king thing, though, because, in fact, Hawkorn has actually been spending a lot of time in the country when growing up, getting to know it before he takes charge of day-to-day governance. And he's now about 10 years old, so he's probably starting to understand and remember some of the lessons that he's being taught by the political figures in the country. There's also a big departure this year. Birgitta has packed her bags once more and is going to leave Sweden, picking perhaps the worst (laughs) year possible when a disastrous plague is ravaging the continent. Birgitta has decided to make a pilgrimage to Rome, accompanied by her daughter Catherine and a few priests and other various hangers-on. This trip is done for a number of reasons, but it is at least partly because she wants to get permission to form a new religious order, the Order of the Most Holy Saviour. She also says her pilgrimage is to try and encourage people to live holier lives and raise the moral standing of people of the time. We will come back to Birgitta and her order in a biography-style episode relatively soon, so we won't talk too much about her right now. Just know that for now, she has left Sweden and is on her way to Rome in the midst of the Black Death. 
Yes, and uh, remember, side note, that the Pope still isn't back at Rome. He's still uh, living in Avignon, so that will become uh, part of Begitta's story as we continue uh, later on in the podcast with her. But, yeah, it's pretty brave to be leaving at this point, so it shows you how much he cares about the whole thing. Coming back again to 1350... This is the year that's actually really known for its big legal changes across Sweden. And for those of you who might know a little bit about Swedish medieval legal history, um, but not that there's necessarily many of you, but uh, you might have heard of this law. Is it the Bay of Bothnia trade rule? No, it's not. That is uh, not the main law that people might have been expecting. But this mini-law also happened in 1350. So uh, let's talk about this one first quickly. This was uh, a law that restricted towns in Norland and in Finland along the Bay of Bothnia from trading abroad, apart from the city of Orbu, which was exempted. So this is a bit random. Um, all these towns in this area can't trade abroad apart from Orbu. Maybe this is because the Black Death is killing off a lot of traders, merchants and farmers and people producing goods and material in Sweden and Finland. So maybe Magnus doesn't want the goods that are produced there from leaving the country? That is entirely a guess from our part, but it could potentially be a logical reason as to why these areas aren't allowed to access the Baltic Sea trade network anymore. Or perhaps the king wants to ensure trade flows through trading hubs such as Stockholm and Visby so that he can ensure he isn't missing out on any import taxes that might be able to slip through the net in smaller ports. Either way, like we said, these are just suggestions from us. But yes, without any further teasing, here comes the main law. It's called the Magnus Eriksson's Landslag, or Magnus Eriksson's National Law, sometimes called Magnus Eriksson's Law of the Realm. We'll use both of those terms interchangeably now for the rest of the discussion. This was a Swedish law passed to try and apply one singular law to the entire nation of Sweden, replacing the local county laws that had previously applied across the country. Now, it is a bit of a running gag on a few similar podcasts that law reform is perhaps the most boring topic to bring up on a history podcast. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Uh, I hope you don't find this too boring because it is pretty significant. Yeah, this is really important when you come to uh, think about the whole social standing and uh, sort of political way that the country is run. This law is trying to bring Sweden up to date when compared to the rest of continental Europe. The national law includes a royal section too, which sets out constitutional principles for elected kingship once again. The nobility and the council gains a bit of an upper hand in their power struggle with the monarchy too, as the principle of this elected kinship is reinstated, but also the king must submit to the nobility's demands for guarantees against arbitrary use of his power. The law took a bold step of regulating the king's council as well. This law stated that from now on, the council had to include the archbishop, plus some other bishops and clerics desired by the king, and 12 representatives from the nobility. They were to swear an oath to give useful advice impartially, to strengthen the king upholding the law according to his oath, and keep his secrets. 
So whilst there's this throwaway comment about keeping the king's secrets and swearing an oath, these things haven't really stopped nobles before and won't stop them from rebelling in the future. This is just a thing they sign on just with, you know, their fingers crossed behind their backs. But the main point is that they're basically trying to reduce the king's power to act without consulting the council and also reiterating the fact that they should be electing their kings not that it should be automatically handed down to the oldest son of the current king and they're making sure that the king can't pack the council and reduce it to just five of his friends and chuck out the archbishop for example which uh, the religious people in the country are very keen to make sure that they had a say in uh, political events too yeah it's quite a big deal this national law, both in terms of how it sets out to limit the king's power, but also this idea that it is one unified singular law for all of Sweden. However, it took time for this national law to be implemented across society, across the country, so that older provincial laws were used as the same time as the new law, which seems to open the floodgates to all sorts of problems, there was a reluctance to replace old laws that had been in place for a long time and therefore there were conflicting rules in place to deal with certain scenarios. When the new law was coming in, but they hadn't removed the old law, in such a case, the plaintiff could actually invoke which one he thought was best. Well, Your Honour, he wasn't allowed to steal that onion as the county law specifically mentions this whilst the national law doesn't. So I want him to be charged under county law, please. Thank you, Your Honour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the person getting to choose which law someone is going to be sentenced under, that's a very amusing thought. Another indication that the law was slightly controversial was the fact that it didn't mention the church or religion at all. There was no church section or canonical law section because the king and the church couldn't agree on what was to be put in it. So in the end, Sweden's counties kept using the church sections or the canonical law from their own old provincial laws without an attempt to unify them. But eventually, over decades and decades, the law for Upland had its church section copied across the country as it was seen as the most sensible. This is similar to what is happening elsewhere, as at the time, the church's all across Europe were fighting tooth and nail to not be under the jurisdiction of state law, but rather keep their own church law, their own canonical law. This is included for jurisdiction over their land, property and people, like bishops and priests, and they succeeded in this case. Yes, no church section in the national law. But two more fun facts about the national law. This law doesn't give different fines and rights to different social groups, like, for example, the Norwegian laws did. In Norway, a noble could be fined more than a peasant if they committed the exact same crime, whereas in Sweden, the punishment was the same. 
and the penalty of outlawry when the state banishes people from their county or parish, this became extended to the whole kingdom and not just the, the person's local province. So if someone commits a crime, they're kicked out of the whole country now. We saw this with Boltulf, who was outlawed for religious crimes a few years before, but he was just kicked out of his own parish and region and returned seven years later. If this new national law had been in place then, Boltulf would have been kicked out of Sweden as a whole. Yeah, that's a big deal. At the same time, there was a unified law for all towns in Sweden, also issued, called Magnus Eriksson's Stadslag, Magnus Eriksson's town law. It essentially tried to do the same thing as the national law, but regulate things such as trade and crime within town walls. Now, here's a slightly longer quote from Christine E. Kolst and her book, A Punishment for Each Criminal, Gender and Crime in Swedish Medieval Law. It's a good read, especially if you're interested in women's history. Yes, the quote says, The making of Magnus Eriksson's Law of the Realm and Town Law represent the next chronological phase in the grouping of laws of Sweden. Magnus Eriksson's Law of the Realm is a compilation of new legislation, of various royal statutes, and of regulations taken from the provincial laws. The influence of the Upland Law and the Östergötland Law is evident. Many of their regulations have been copied verbatim. In comparison, the Vestigartland laws were used very little in the compilation of these new laws. The town law is without doubt secondary to the law of the realm. Magnus Eriksson's law constitutes a new phase in Sweden's legal history. We find for the first time an entire law code meant to be valid throughout the realm. This legal phase is characterized by attempts to centralize legal practice and to tie lawmaking and justice to the king and his council. So this is interesting. Just like Upland's church law gets copied around the country, its county law is being copied, sometimes word for word, in the new law of the realm. So it was a bit like Magnus sent some scribes and scholars around and they collected a lot of the good laws that they thought were sensible and just try to spread that around Sweden rather than invent everything from scratch. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this practice a number of times in history. The first thing that pops into my mind is a couple of Roman emperors have done similar things where they've redone the whole law book and things. It's like, oh, well, we keep this one, but let's just get rid of that one as that's a bit confusing if we have the same one. So blah, blah, blah. And what's really cool is now we're heading forward in time, as we obviously do in a chronological podcast, we're seeing more and more things survive to the modern day. And one of these is a copy of Magnus Eriksson's law that is in the possession of Uppsala University Library. And this is a handwritten copy from 1430. And this only tells you a small bit about the longevity of this law. It's going to be continued to be used along with the town law until the early 1600s, hence why there's a copy from 1430. They did a good job writing it then. Or perhaps it was just such a big law that it was a massive faff to change any of it. Either way, it sent Swedish law on this path for a couple of hundred years or so. 
The copy in Uppsala University Library includes a lot of cool hand-drawn pictures introducing each section of the law. And uh, we'll put a link in the episode description because some of these pictures are on the website. So you should definitely go and have a look. Uh, they're really funny. But for those of you who won't click on the link, we'll describe some of them now. Uh, the land section has a landscape painting of two trees, which in itself is one of the oldest landscape paintings in Nordic art, which is uh, amazing. The farming section begins with a picture of a farmer putting a shovel into the ground, for example. The fancy clothes of the time are displayed throughout the images in the law, but especially in the marriage section, where an engaged couple is shown. In the inheritance section, there is an illustration of siblings arguing, and in the trade section, there is a picture of a fancily dressed lady haggling with a tradesman. All of the areas of medieval life depicted. So overall, this law is a pretty big deal in the history of Sweden. We will leave it there for now, as there is so many other things going on right now. And of course, a lot of what's going on has to do with money. Yes, of course it does. Magnus looks in his bank balance in 1351 and, just like every other year up till now, realises he has no money. So he wants to borrow some more, and this time he borrows money that's been collected on behalf of the papal treasury. Um, sounds a bit like that's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> This is perhaps the reason why the church wants to try and keep some independence in the kingdom and not have to rely on the king as he's constantly borrowing all of their money. To make matters worse, a year later, a royal proclamation is issued that says that land owned by the church will now be taxed. Uh-oh! Uh-oh, indeed. Uh, the aim is to try and bring the national budget back to something at least approaching something that's sustainable. But, of course, the proclamation is met with extreme criticism from the religious nobility, who are those who will be affected most by this new law. In the end, they cause such a fuss that Magnus is forced to shelve these plans, and the new tax never comes into effect. This is sad news for Magnus, as this is just one more example of how he can't ever seem to get his own way in the end. And of course, the Black Death is sweeping through Sweden right now, so Magnus really isn't having the best of times. It isn't just Sweden, you can see this over in Novgorod too. Their centerpiece, the great castle at Nöteboy, is still a wreck after the lengthy siege against the Swedish occupiers. Whilst there isn't too much danger of a Swedish attack at the moment, the Novgorodians are keen to get their castle back up and running, ready to stop any future invasions. In fact, they're so desperate to try and fix it and rebuild the fortifications that they actually sent their archbishop, a man with no military experience, to look after and run the project. The Novgorod Chronicle says, The boyars and the common people of Novgorod petitioned the archbishop of Novgorod, Vladkaya Vasily, to go establish a fort on Orokov, he went and established the fort and returned to Novgorod. This seems a bit strange, sending an archbishop to build a castle, and this event hasn't gone unnoticed by historians either. 
M.C. Paul in his article Archbishop Vasily Kalika of Novgorod, the Fortress of Orikov and the Defense of Orthodoxy, has a long piece explaining why this might be the case. But seeing as how the last episode about the Black Death and this episode have seen a few long quotes by us that you're probably getting bored of our voices somewhat, we've actually asked a podcasting friend to read out this quote for us. Allow me to introduce Bree from Pontifax, a Rex Factor-style podcast ranking all the popes from Peter, the first one, to Francis. You can probably guess why we chose Bree, apart from the fact that she's a great podcaster and has the best voice ever. So, uh, yes, this fits into their realm of uh, events. So, yes, what exactly did MC Paul have to say about Archbishop Vasily getting involved with the castle at Nurtiboy? Vasily Kalika's role in establishing, or rather re-establishing, the fortress at Orokov is somewhat perplexing, since it is not clear why the Novgorodians would go to the archbishop and ask him to undertake such a task. It seemed perhaps a folly to entrust the rebuilding of the fortress to an ecclesiastic with no legitimate role in military affairs and no personal military experience so far as we know a man whom the Novgorodian First Chronicle called good, gentle, and humble. Building fortifications was not usually a task given to the archbishops of Novgorod. The Russians held the Byzantine view of their bishops. Thus, Russian Orthodox prelates were never seen as military commanders or warriors, even during the medieval period. This would suggest that the people of Novgorod would have never even considered sending their archbishop on a task so unsuited for the office but instead would have dispatched a more fitting official, a prince, mayor, or general. Why then did they send Vasily Kalika? An examination of the events leading up to Archbishop Vasily's mission to Orokov shows that he went to rebuild the fortifications at Orokov because of the religious nature of the conflict along the Neva and the border between Swedish Finland and Russia in the mid-14th century. At that time, Orokov was quite literally a bulwark of Orthodox Novgorod against the encroachment of the Catholic Swedes, who under their king, King Magnus IV, waged a crusade against the Novgorodians and the non-Russian tribes living in the Novgorodian lands. Thus, it was not out of place for an ecclesiastic to be asked to see to the defense of orthodoxy against the Roman Catholic aggression. There was an even more practical reason for the choice of Vasily Kalika as the man sent to rebuild Orkorov, Novgorod had, in some sense, already tried everything else. Thank you, Bree, and we recommend all of our listeners to go and check out Pontifact's podcast. Uh, you can find them wherever you find your podcasts, and they're on Twitter at Pontifact's Pod, uh, and uh, you will learn everything you ever wanted to know and lots of things you had no idea that you wanted to know about the popes of history yes exactly thank you again Bree. so yeah it seems like just like everywhere else the novgorodians were running out of good public officials and generals thanks to endless war plague and general death Maybe that was one of the Novgorodian commanders, General Death. <laughs> Probably. General Death. Major destruction. But MC Paul is convinced that 
it is also because of the highly religious nature of the war against Sweden. We're not leaning as hard into this explanation as economic and political motivations are clearly there too, but it does seem that everyone involved, especially people like Vasily and Bigitta, are extremely passionate about their religion. So yeah, it's probably, like all things, a mixture of the two. So let's quickly finish Vasily's story, shall we, as it's going to end very soon. Later in 1352, he was called to the city of Paskov, which was at the time ravaged by plague. A small side note, because I find all this Novgorodian history really interesting, uh, Peskov is actually quite an interesting place too. Way back when, after the fall of the Rus in Kiev, Peskov became part of the Novgorodian Republic, but was actually allowed to keep some independence when it came to trade and building new towns and things like that. It actually played a big role in fighting the Livonian order to the west, and slowly its influence grew to the point that it gained full independence from Novgorod in 1348, so just four years prior to Vasily's visit at this point in the timeline. This was still part of Vasily's religious domain, though, hence his visit. And this is where he's heading to, going to a city full of plague, and he goes there to hold a number of processions and liturgies until the plague actually subsides. Oh, he clearly cured everyone from the plague then! Yay! Good job, Archbishop. <laughs> Good job! <laughs> However, on his return trip to Novgorod, down the Shellon River, he got the plague himself. He died on the 3rd of July that very year. Um, he seems like a very interesting chap. Master Mason, Archbishop, Plague Doctor. Um, he did it all, really. 1352 seems the first mention of one particular noble on the Council of Sweden, someone who is known to be a favourite of King Magnus going forward. This man is called Bengt, like a lot of people are, and he was married to, surprise, Ingeborg, Ull's daughter of Tofta, a member of the Spagger family. So, of course, a Bengt is marrying an <laughs> Ingeborg. Now, we've actually briefly heard of the Spagger family when we heard of the guy called Sparra of Tofta. So, this Ingeborg seems to have been reasonably well off. She's also much older than Bengt was and possibly already a widow from a previous marriage. Bengt can trace his own roots all the way back to Sverko II from the early 1200s, so he's no peasant either. But yes, we know that he was part of the council in 1352 and seemed to be close to King Magnus. You can tell that he was liked by the king, as the following year, 1353, he is appointed Duke of Halland, a title Magnus's own mother was holding until now, as well as Duke of Finland. Duke of Finland was previously a very prestigious title, but it had actually been dormant for a few decades. But it had been previously held by people like King Magnus' uncle Valdemar, who lost the title when he died childless back in 1318 after being imprisoned by his brother, King Pierre at the Nyköping Gestabud uh, that we talked about way back in those episodes. So yes, Bengt is clearly an important chap. 
In addition to these titles, he's also made Governor of Scorna, sort of Magnus's representative in that mini-kingdom, as remember this isn't part of Sweden really at the time. So this is another very important job, considering how much Magnus paid for the county and its proximity to a rejuvenating Denmark. At this time, the title is usually used by those who are in charge of specific castles, such as Kalmar Castle or Orbul Castle, rather than whole regions like Skorna, so Bengt is a bit of an exception. The way of using it to call someone the governor of a castle is actually the most common use of the word today, where leaders of local authorities lucky enough to have a castle in their area are also appointed as governors of those castles alongside their civic job as a sort of royal governor for these royal castles. That's quite a cool double job to have. Council leader and governor of a castle. Yeah, definitely very cool. That's a, that's a decent second job to have. And on that fun fact, it is probably time to say goodbye for this week. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook. Just search A Flatpack History of Sweden. Or we're on Twitter, at Flatpack Sweden. Or, of course, you can send us an email on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, flatpackhistorysweden.com. Until now, I think that's probably just about time to say goodbye. Thank you once again to Bree for the excellent quote reading. And uh, do check out Pontifax if you have a chance. It's goodbye from us. Hey, Dor.